from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. How you doing? Great. How are you over there in the, what does it call it, the Hurricane the, land? The Hurricane. Hurricane 23. LA actually made it through okay, I think. There was a little bit of flooding. I personally had a little bit of flooding in our office and we had some tree limbs down. Uh, there was an awful lot of rain and a 5.5 earthquake north of the city that happened on the same day. But overall, I don't think there was any loss of life and uh, not a whole lot of damage problems. So we made it through okay. Good. They canceled Cyclavia. They canceled Cyclavia. That was the real bummer of the whole thing. Isn't that ironic? The extreme weather that we're supposed to be not contributing to by biking and walking in a Cyclavia cancels it. I think what's amazing is in any kind of natural disaster, a bicycle is a great tool to have. You know, if there's a traffic jam trying to get out of town, if the roads are blocked by trees or power lines, you know, the bicycle is still a great way to help someone or to evacuate a certain area. And people never talk about that. They never, you know, talk about, hey, have your bike ready. They talk about get your car filled up and your Your cell phone charged. You have a bug out bag, but they don't say bug out bike. Right. You know, you see those apocalyptic movies like Mad Max and they're all driving cars. Yeah. Driving cars that are burning gas that got us into the problem of Mad Max in the first place. Right. Yeah. We need an apocalyptic bike movie. (laughs) We need any bike movie except for Pee-wee's Great Adventure. Which was a great bike movie. Paul Rubens, may he rest in peace. Yeah. You know, someone said actually, Nick, in an interview that I did recently, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a remake of The Bicycle Thief. And that hit me of like, God, that's the truth. Is it? Yeah. It's a story about a, a young man getting his stolen bike back. And that's, of course, what the, you know, the famous movie, The um, Bicycle Thief is, except that's a father and son. Wow. And it's a beautiful movie. Henry Grabar, who wrote Paved Paradise, he's the one that told me that Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a remake of The Bicycle Thief. And he's the one who wrote Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. He's a biker. And uh, it's, I think, really great when writers who bike write about biking rather than riders, R-I-D-E-R-S, who also write. Am I making sense? (laughs) We have a writer who writes about biking uh, next with uh, Lindsey Sturman. His name is Peter Norton. He wrote Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City, and Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. He's also a professor at University of Virginia. I love that people are talking about that high-tech cars, whether they be EVs or you know robot cars, are not going to save the day. Because part of the problem is there are too many cars on the road and they're going too fast. And whether they are driven by robots or people, they hit pedestrians and cyclists. And if they're going over 25, 30 miles an hour, they kill them. This idea that the same kind of technology which caused our problems is going to solve our problems is really a way of not dealing with our problems. Right. Isn't Einstein's definition for insanity doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? Was that Einstein? He said he had so many great quotes. Well, here's Peter Norton with Lindsey Sturman. We are thrilled to welcome Peter Norton an associate professor of history at the University of Virginia, 
and the author of two books about mobility, Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. And then his newest book is Otanorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. And Otanorama is a combination of autonomous driving and Futurama. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for coming on Bike Talk. It's my great pleasure to be here today, Lindsay. So tell us, how did you get interested in the history of mobility? When I was a teenager, like other teenagers, uh, I felt like I couldn't get around unless I could find somebody to give me a ride. I rode my bike everywhere, but that was hard and sometimes scary. I walked a lot and I wondered, you know, how we got into this jam where if you don't have a car, you're stranded. When you teach about mobility, what do you teach? So my students at the University of Virginia are all engineering students. And the University of Virginia thinks that if you're going to be an engineer, you have to not only be good at your engineering field with all that expertise, but because engineering is supposed to serve people, you need to understand people as well, all kinds of different people. And I particularly stress how they need to understand what we've learned from history, because history I think of as like our collective experience and experiences where wisdom comes from. And as long as our historical memories are short, we don't have enough of the wisdom we need to uh, navigate this tricky world we all live in. The usual explanation for why we have this car-dependent country with car-dependent cities and suburbs is because it was a kind of evolutionary adaptation to a new technology, the automobile, and the adjustments, while sometimes painful, were mostly just sort of a natural evolution following from this vehicle and the popularity of this vehicle, it makes us imagine that, well, the status quo we have now was really, you know, the democratic choice or the consumer demand choice or the free market choice uh, or just a technological evolution uh, of a natural kind. And I think all of those are dangerous lessons to draw because they're going to make it harder for us to pursue a more sustainable and more people-friendly and more affordable, healthier future. Um, and so I'm not trying to argue that the popularity of the cars is fictional or contrived or fo foisted on us. People really do like cars. I like uh, having access to a car as well. What I'm saying was more or less foisted on us was a world rebuilt around the assumption that you have a car and that if society has given you a way to get to your destination by car, then it's fulfilled its obligations to its citizens in terms of giving us an environment that we can navigate. If you don't have a car and you can't get around, your problem now is to get a car or to get the help you need, perhaps from a social service, where public transit is kind of a leftover for a minority of people who depend upon it while the rest of us all drive. Now that particular status quo, it's an objective fact that it's incredibly energy intensive, resource intensive and expensive. It's also unhealthful, dangerous, exclusionary of people of lower incomes, environmentally unsustainable, damaging to cities. I'm talking about a future where if you would prefer to get around by some other means, you could have that choice. I think this is a freedom of choice matter. In your view, how does this affect for bikes, people who want to ride bikes? 
it's possible to mix a lot of different modes of transportation and to give people a lot of choices. There's one mode that in particular doesn't mix well with others, and that is driving. Now, you can have environments where drivers drive very slowly, often because of the way the street is designed. And in those environments, people typically can walk and ride bikes comfortably and safely, even if they aren't you know, the most adept cyclist. So there's ways to mix cars and bicycles. Uh, and what they all have in common is that the cars have to slow down and the drivers have to pay close attention. Uh, the other approach, though, is to separate the modes. Uh, so, for example, if you have a separated bike lane with a with a barrier of some kind between the cyclist and the motor vehicles, that bike lane is going to be vastly more inviting to the typical cyclist than any system that expects you to mix with uh, motor vehicles like Sharrows do. You know, you do get into the intersection issue because unless you can really slow those cars down, most people won't want kids or seniors, people with disabilities and vulnerable road users just won't, That you know. There are ways to manage intersections that make them work for everybody relatively well. One of the hazards of traffic signals, lights, is that drivers who see a green light generally don't slow down. They just keep going the same speed they've been going. But if you have a traffic circle, every driver approaching that circle slows down to enter the circle. And that makes the circle much more inviting to be in if you're walking or cycling then the same thing would be as an intersection. If you're really a vulnerable road user and you're on a trike, say, or adaptive bike, or you've got a little kid with you, do you really even feel comfortable with a car crossing your lane? There is absolutely ways to accommodate cyclists such that they don't have to mix with motor vehicles at all, or perhaps only very infrequently at certain crossings. Um, and that's the separated bike lane or bike path because they take up so much less space. If we were serious about it, they're relatively easy and inexpensive to s install, certainly compared to roads. In other countries, particularly the Netherlands, you can even have bike underpasses and bike overpasses where your bicycle path goes under or over the road. Um, sometimes they've even arranged it in the Netherlands so, such that it's the driver who has to go down or up to go over or under the bike path on the assumption that you want to make the bike path the priority. These can be done. Um, they can appear to be expensive, but that appearance is misleading because every time you attract somebody who's driving a car today onto a bike path, you are saving the taxpayers of the country the enormous expense of accommodating another car because although a dedicated bike lane is more expensive than, let's say, a painted bike lane on the side of the road, it is vastly less expensive than accommodating that same person in a car. If you have enough of that sort of first-class separated bike infrastructure, then you can also afford to have some compromises where to save some money, you have just paint or, or you expect a little bit of mixing with motor vehicles, 
because there's enough separated infrastructure for the people who need it and then the people who want um, a little more versatility in their route well they can have that too in other words it can be win-win for everyone in your engineering department do you study is anyone studying how to scale up bike mode share how to get people on bikes what level of safety people need is this something that people are studying Yes. Now, engineers do study these questions about how to increase bike riding, how to, uh, you know, what, what kinds of infrastructure people prefer, where electric bikes fit in, how to attract populations who don't want to take the risks that are often necessary when we ask cyclists to mix with motor vehicles. All of these are important research problems that engineers study. Uh, I do have to say, though, that I think Researchers typically need funding to pursue their research agendas, and the funding tends to come from sources that are interested in higher tech vehicular mobility, like automated driving systems. And these sorts of research agendas, I think, divert too much of researchers' attention away from the most important, most sustainable, most healthful modes of mobility, safest modes of mobility, like walking, cycling, and transit. There's this comparison to Rachel Carson, who warned us that seeking technological solutions instead of ecological balance can just make our problems worse. <laughs> and I think that is one of the main themes of your book. So tell us about this sort of elusive goal that somehow tech will save us. I think Rachel Carson's message is still underappreciated. We have a kind of a folklore that says that when Rachel Carson wrote her best-selling book, Silent Spring, in 1962, we really all woke up to the need to be skeptical about people who want to sell us technological solutions to everything, in her case, uh, insect pests to farmers and gardeners and foresters. And we need to uh, recognize that pursuing a, a balance can be more fruitful than trying to achieve perfection, which was what got us into trouble to the point that she wrote her book. But I actually think we have so much more to learn from her and her book. State transportation departments and other public authorities are still sort of taking the approach that Carson criticized 60 years ago where they're pursuing a kind of high-tech perfection that you can never actually accomplish because the more you pursue this perfection, the more you sort of attract more driving, the more you, in other ways, exacerbate the problem, which is a perfect analogy with what Rachel Carson was writing about, the uh, effort to eradicate insect pests with chemicals. Because the more highways you build in an effort to relieve traffic congestion, the more you practically require people to drive because all of the other alternatives get worse in such a world. So I think we need to listen to that advice. I don't think we've listened to it as much as we thought we have. And when it comes to getting around our towns and cities, her advice adapted to that problem becomes looking for low-tech solutions the least demanding modes like walking and cycling and transit, permitting driving, of course, but permitting it without prioritizing it everywhere. Um, these are ways in which we could apply her wisdom 
to traffic problems today. Well, it's interesting that you talk about wisdom. Any thoughts on how we as advocates try to start this conversation about car blindness? We live in an era that celebrates intelligence, and we hear this word applied a lot to the technology around us, uh, intelligent systems or smart systems. These adjectives are everywhere. But I think everybody knows, or everyone with a little bit of experience in the world knows, that intelligence without wisdom is dangerous because intelligence doesn't tell us what to apply our intelligence toward. It helps us pursue our goals. Intelligence helps us pursue our goals, but intelligence does not tell us what our goals should be. That's up to, that's, that's a question that requires wisdom. History is like a shared memory. I think our shared memory is very limited and short and often erroneous as well. Uh, I, so I see it as my job to try to bring history to bear on our current conversations in a way that restores that memory because experience is the parent of wisdom and to apply our experience, we need good memories. I try to connect or reconnect our history to our status quo and apply it in ways that can guide us toward a better future. And better is a question that has to be addressed by wisdom and not intelligence, because intelligence will just help us get to any future. It's wisdom that tells us which one is the better future. We tend to define, let's say, traffic congestion as a problem of not enough road capacity. So we think, oh, if there's a traffic jam, then we need to add a lane or add an exit ramp or something like that. And same thing with safety. When there's crashes, we tend to think, oh, we need to widen this road. We need to uh, you know, separate this uh, highway, make it a divided highway or this kind of thing. Now, there's limited validity to both of those positions. In other words, there can be reasons why traffic congestion might mean insufficient road capacity or why crashes might mean that you haven't designed your highway quite correctly. But what we forget and this is because we don't really know our history here, is that the idea that you relieve traffic congestion by adding more roads or you make roads safer by expanding them, those are political ideas that began by people who wanted to sell more cars. They are the people who founded the institutions we still turn to today for our expert answers. It was people who wanted to sell more cars who made sure that we look first at road design improvements or vehicle improvements to prevent crashes rather than at ways of slowing cars down. It was people who wanted to sell more cars who made sure that when we see a traffic congestion problem, we don't say, oh, too many people are driving. We say there's not enough road capacity. We need to re-examine that history because when we do, we'll discover that we have much better choices and much more choices about how to respond to problems like those. And let me guess, that is to go the opposite direction, the sort of counterintuitive solution, which is safer streets, narrower lanes of cars, fewer cars because more people are able to walk, bike, use micro-mobility or transit. That's right, Lindsay. And the fact that she called that counterintuitive and I agree with you, it is counterintuitive. That fact is a signal of how successful uh, the people who sold us cars were at 
sort of creating the world in which our notion of what's intuitive emerged because the intuitive approach a century ago it, when we had a lot of people getting injured and killed by cars and their drivers and also we had a lot of traffic congestion in cities at that time the intuitive solution was to restrict drivers to slow them down to narrow the streets to restrict the turning radius on the intersections those all became counterintuitive later on thanks to the really imaginative and energetic work of the people who had a business interest in selling more cars and so what fascinates me is that a lot of the innovative techniques that you see going on in urban planning today for limiting driver's speed and making streets more welcoming for others are actually rediscoveries of techniques that we were using a hundred years ago only the urban planners generally don't know that so they're sort of independently reinventing the techniques that were introduced a hundred years ago to slow cars down it sort of speaks to this av obsession autonomous vehicle obsession and I kind of notice, you know, amongst my friends and, you know, in the press, but most people love the idea of this tech solution, right? This simple solution. I'll bet most of your listeners have heard of Arthur C. Clarke. He was the uh, writer, engineer, scientist um, who wrote the screenplay for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And when he was writing that screenplay for that movie back in 1968, he wrote a letter to Science Magazine, and in the letter he wrote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's an amazing sentence. Magic is something that makes us drop our skepticism. You pull a rabbit out of a hat, well, now you think this magician can do other things that you thought the magician couldn't do. You're prepared to see things you thought were impossible. Well, state-of-the-art technology, the latest stuff, has that effect on us. When we see amazing technology, we think, oh, what I thought was impossible is actually possible. And so when state-of-the-art technology is invoked today to say that robot cars will solve our, all our problems, we're inclined to believe it because we've learned from experience that state-of-the-art technology does things we thought were impossible. Now, I think this is a very dangerous effect because if somebody can use state-of-the-art technology to tell you that robot cars will solve all our problems, you don't really feel qualified to say no because the state-of-the-art technology kind of surpasses our qualifications to question it because we just don't know what's possible with state-of-the-art technology. But that means we can be sold futures that are either impossible or just foolish to attempt to pursue. So what I try to remind people is that the technology really is amazing, but amazing technology does not make car dependency work. And this amazing technology is pervaded with misinformation. Just to illustrate that, I'll take the term autonomous. The so-called AVs, autonomous vehicles and so on, are not autonomous. Their makers don't want them to be autonomous. They, they're incapable of becoming autonomous. No tech will ever make them autonomous. They are robot cars. 
the reason they don't call them robot cars is that robot has lost that power to make us believe, as Arthur C. Clarke said, that this amazing technology will do wonders. But autonomous sort of recovers that lost magic of the word. Autonomous means having a will of its own and the capacity to make choices on its own. But a successful robot car only does what its developers want it to do. And to them, an autonomous car that was really autonomous would be a total failure because now they couldn't make sure that that car did exactly what they wanted. Autonomous is the opposite of deterministic and the successful robot car is deterministic, not autonomous. But the reason why the companies, the tech developers and so on prefer the word autonomous is that it has that magic that Arthur C. Clarke was referring to. And robot, that's now an old word. It doesn't impress us anymore. So they don't want to call them robot cars. I, I think if you actually ask people, would you prefer a future with robot cars? Uh, there would be very little interest. But if you say autonomous cars, wow, that sounds kind of amazing. Robot cars or autonomous cars, if you want to call them that, cannot solve our traffic congestion problems. They're unbelievably expensive to develop and operate and build and maintain. They take an enormous amount of labor to manage as well. There's a big misconception that they save a lot of labor, but they all have to be supervised from remote centers. And yes, one person can supervise multiple vehicles, but there's a very low limit to how many vehicles uh, one of these human supervisors can really oversee. I, I would call them a profound dead end, and we're making a mistake following along this dead end. When people have a business interest in a certain kind of mobility future for us, they make sure that, first of all, we get to see a lot of impressive publicity for it in the form of videos or marketing or ads and sort of thing. But they also make sure that the agencies, the state or federal or sometimes local agencies that make these decisions, um, they're, they're under pressure. The coverage by uh, David Zipper, the journalist of the San Francisco situation, I found particularly revealing. He showed, for example, that one of the members of the California Public Utilities Commission was actually with the, the cruise company. There is influence going on behind these decisions that are made on the behalf of the public uh, and that are conflicts of interest. Are you seeing success anywhere? Do you have any tactics, strategies that you could recommend? Most Americans don't have good choices besides driving. We could have far more choices than that. There are plenty of great examples of ways in which those choices can be given to us without depriving people who really want to drive of that choice. They can have that choice. In fact, a lot of these alternatives to driving can actually make driving more pleasant for those who need to drive. If you make those other modes really attractive, then a lot of people who would be driving are riding a bike or taking the bus or the train instead, leaving the roads more pleasant for the remainder of people who are still driving. I do think we need to have much less driving, though, simply because of the environmental and cost and health and safety tolls that driving impose on all of us. It's not just that drivers assume these costs. These costs are subsidized heavily. 
Um, also, a lot of the costs of, of driving are paid by the whole of society, for example, in the form of the pollutants, the particulates, and the carbon emissions. Those are burdens that are not borne by the driver, but by all of us. If I had to reduce it to one thing, we need to stop letting people who have stuff to sell us tell us what our future should be, because, of course, they say it should be the future that they're selling. We need to choose our future. We're a country that says it's democratic, that says it's a republic. And so it should be a democratic choice uh, and not just a market choice about what kind of mobility future we have. It's like the smoking analogy. We keep trying to have smoking and non-smoking, but we're really just all sitting and smoking. <laughs> and it's really not a choice. If you're going to have fast cars and minimal safe infrastructure for walkers, bikers, and then buses stuck in traffic, it's really not a choice. Lindsay, you put that incredibly well because one of the tricky things about accommodating driving is that you're never just accommodating driving, you're also deterring everything else. So if you accommodate the very basics for driving, like slow streets and so on, without much parking, well, that works well with other things. But the minute you prioritize driving, the minute you let people drive 30, 40, 50 miles an hour everywhere. Uh, the minute you make sure that there's enough parking for every driver as well, all of those goals entail rebuilding cities, suburbs, and towns, and even some rural areas in such a way that you can't do anything else. For example, if there's enough parking for all the cars, that makes all of the stores or restaurants or whatever spread out because of the parking lots in between them. And that effect makes it harder for you to get to that destination on foot, by bike, or by transit. We should never rebuild our environments to prioritize driving because it's not just a question of serving drivers. It's also the fact that those efforts deter the more affordable, sustainable, healthful, and inclusive modes of mobility, i.e. all of the other modes. Peter Norton, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. This has been absolutely fascinating. Lindsay, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love that, Nick, that we're talking about how to make the roads safe for everybody, not just people inside the car. And we talk a lot about how, you know, it's intuitive that if you want to make the road safe, well, you have to widen the street. And if you want to relieve congestion and traffic jams, you have to add a lane. We're learning now that if you really want to make the road safe, you have to narrow the lane because that slows the driver down inherently. You have to make the streetscape tell the driver how to drive. If you want to relieve congestion, you actually take away a lane by adding a bike lane and allowing people the option to choose another way to transport themselves. It used to be intuitive that you make lanes narrower if you want to slow cars down and you want to get cars off the road. These things used to be intuitive before car companies and selling cars or related things sold us the idea that everything has to be laid out for your drivers. For cars and only cars, right? Like it used to be that if there was a traffic jam, well, that meant there were too many cars, you know, and people should walk to the game or, you know, ride their bike or carpool to school or something like that. I loved it what Peter said. We have to stop planning our future around what people are selling us. And maybe we could have a new kind of economy where people can make money off of things that are good for us. Like a greenway. 
like a greenway, like bike tourism. And that right. brings us to our, our next interview. Well, you know, we've been talking on the show a lot about, I mean, we had Ragbri on, which is the Register's annual great bicycle ride across Iowa. It's in the last week of July. You know, this year, 50,000 people did it. And that can turn the economy of some of these small towns around completely for the whole year. But not only that, yeah. uh, Seamus last week was talking about going to New York and doing a, a bike tourism there. Last month, I was in Michigan doing a bike tourism on the Tart Trails in northern Michigan. Bike tourism is great business for small towns that have been left behind by the freeway system. There is a, a really great bike route. It's a multi-segment, multi-state bike route that links New York City and Montreal, Canada. Our New England correspondent, Lily Hoffman Strickler, brings us this interview with Dan McGinnis and Tom O'Brien on the Western New England Greenway. Dan and Tom from the Western New England Greenway, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm retired, but before that, I was a, a regional planner in uh, the nine-town region in Western Connecticut. You know, I've also <laughs> cyclist for about 25 years. You know, fairly dedicated and done some uh, bike touring and done bike tours, as well as done some independent stuff. I make my living as a journalist as well as a carpenter. Um, but I've been a lifelong advocate for biking, walking, and uh, transit as well. So I first started trying to get a bike ped trail built in my community, uh, New Milford, Connecticut, along the uh, Housatonic. We are still working on that effort, but it's been a slow, long slog. If, if anybody that's ever worked on bike trails knows that dealing with the bureaucracy and the funding is, is slow. So. Yeah. I met up with Dan and his group about 2010, and we all started working together. What we learned in our area is we need to educate drivers as much as anything else, and we need to educate bicyclists that there's alternatives to riding on the busy state roads. The success that we had was joining all of our individual efforts together and mapping out essentially what bike ped trails are there and connecting them by the scenic back roads that you might not know about if you mm -hmm. didn't live in that town. So yeah. essentially that's what the Western New England Greenway is and US Bike Route 7 is. I actually describe it as like a ski resort with almost all black diamond trails and no easy trails. Because <laughs> if you're a um, experienced bike rider like me and Dan, and you don't mind steep hills, you don't mind gravel, you're okay sharing narrow roads with cars, this honestly is the best bike riding in the world from Norwalk, Connecticut, all the way to the Canadian border. This route really spans quite a distance. Can you talk a little bit about the different segments of the Greenway? What can you expect to see when you ride along it? You see some classic New England towns. There's covered bridges. Uh, you ride through some really small towns. And I mean, you go through everything from like, you go through the Scaticoke Indian Reservation, up in Kent, uh, which is a gravel road. You go through very green valleys and some really pretty spots. You know, you go up to Burlington, which is a great bicycling place. You know, there's just a lot to see. And if, you, if you're interested in, you know, New England and you sort of a lot of the small towns and stopping for ice cream and food and all of that, it's great. 
Yeah, from either direction, whether you start in Burlington, Vermont, or you start in Norwalk, I mean, you start in essentially an urban or a semi-urban location. And then as you head out of town, you end up on incredibly beautiful back roads. A lot of people don't realize how beautiful all of New England is. You just have to get away from those heavily traveled feeder state roads. We have taken people who aren't familiar with, especially Connecticut, um, on these rides. And one person, I was very glad to hear them say that, they were going by the reservoir. Saugatuck is the name of the reservoir. And they said, wow, this is as beautiful as Vermont. And I said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And it's only 50 miles from Times Square. So yeah. it's pretty cool. It's intended primarily as you, the U.S. bike route to be for long distance experienced bike riders. Since we've done it, it attracts many of them. Last year, we had our first big uh, bicycle group come through. There's a group called People Cycling. They're a nonprofit group. And they brought 18 cyclists and rode the Western New England Greenway. And those people spend money in the small towns. I was going to ask, there's so many small towns and and amenities and sites along the Greenway. Have you seen, you know, a significant increase in business or, or, you know, have you heard about contributions that the Greenway's made to these regional economies, uh, particularly like terms of tourism and, and these local businesses? My town, New Milford, at the north end of town close to the border with the town of Kent, uh, there's one of those small town grocery stores. And we used to leave a lot of rides where we would ride from our town, take kids to there, which is about five miles back. And I um, stopped in on my own one time and got a cup of coffee and something. And I said to the, uh, the owner, how's it going? And he said, I got to tell you, business is so much better since that Greenway Trail opened. We've talked to like the regional planning organization a couple times and, you know, you can read the economic studies and be bored to tears. And they basically say the same thing. It's it's an economic benefit, but I keep telling them along the uh, Farmington Trail, go in there on a Saturday. I mean, you'll see cyclists like crazy. Tom, you said this bikeway, it's good for people who are fine with narrow roads. How much of the Greenway is protected and not just, you know, a a narrow strip next to speeding cars? 90%, maybe 80 to 90% of the route is extremely safe. Uh, If it's shared with cars, it's a side road that nobody drives on unless they live on that road. People are amazed that you can ride for two hours and if you get passed by two cars, you kind of look around and say, what's that guy doing on our road? Yeah. Um, in New England, because it's so old, essentially we are blessed with the old Route 7s that still exist, that are gravel and that sort of run along a river or parallel or cross Route 7 a couple of times, but they've been largely forgotten about. And those are the roads we've been able to use. So we still have a couple of problem areas. You know, we're planning that this will keep getting better and better, but I would say Close to 90% of the route is absolutely safe for anybody who is comfortable, you know, on a road where they will get passed by a car sometimes or on a gravel road where you need a little bit wider tires and you need a little bit, yeah. you know, the ability to, um, to ride on a sketchy surface. What the advantage is, is a whole lot of people like in my town, they start out with their kids on the Riverside Greenway where we have five miles to finish that. 
And then they get up at the end of it, they get up in a town called Gaylordsville and they're immediately on a road, one of those back roads that nobody ever rides on. And so they venture out to take another step onto a lightly traveled road and they get used to the fact that, yeah, an occasional car will pass, but it's a safe place to ride. We're helping people take the step and we're educating cars, especially with our signs. We're educating drivers because it, you know, 10 years ago, the biggest problem is drivers weren't used to seeing bicyclists on the road and they'd come around a curve and they'd be surprised and like, why is somebody riding a bike here? Now they're used to seeing bike riders. And from my experience, most people pass me by three foot or more, where in the past it might've been for close brush. You know, these are all different methods of making this area more bike friendly. Uh, one of the things we're, we're working on is to try to start a bike friendly business program, you know, so that cyclists will know, you know, they're not going to look at you funny if you come into a hotel with the, with your bicycle. You know, they'll have a pump, a floor pump. They'll know that, you know, you're a cyclist. They're going to have a place where you can store your bike and they're not going to just tell you, lock it up outside in front of the store or something or in front of your, of the hotel. We're trying to get that going as a way of, you know, identifying and make it better for cyclists. You know, the restaurants would have a, a bike rack out front, uh, that type of thing. I mean, if you've ever done any bike touring, you'll know, you show up at a hotel, you want someplace where you can stick your bike that's going to be safe, undercover. And if they have a floor pump, it's like, hallelujah, you know, right. yeah. that's one of the things we're trying, you know, we're starting to work on. What we're kind of excited about, especially with tour groups, is the opportunity to do an actual loop, you know, rather than, you know, go from one end to the other and have to get shuttled back that, you know, they can go north on the Empire State Trail and cross Lake Champlain and Plattsburgh or wherever, and then come south or the other way around so they can do a full loop. That's possible now using some existing roads, but um, it will get better. Dan, you mentioned the bike-friendly business program, signage in Massachusetts. Are there any ongoing or future plans for expansion or improvement for the Greenway? You know, we're trying to promote it some more. We're trying to get more tour groups. The advantage of having a tour group come through is you may see one or two cyclists riding along, but if you have a, a group of 18 cyclists all of a sudden show up at one of your restaurants or your hotel, that makes a big splash, especially in some of these towns, you know, it becomes really noticeable that way. But yeah, I would agree with Dan. A strong priority is to promote uh, these off-road trails in areas where what we've been able to map out is not ideal. I'd like to talk, if I could, about rail with trail, because we think if our state government and if our local railroads will be more cooperative, we see a tremendous opportunity to build an off-road trail alongside the Housatonic Railroad in Litchfield yeah. County. Yeah. And New York State, their Maybrook Trail runs right along the active uh, Metro North. So we're hoping that our leadership will look across the border and say, hey, if they did it, we can do it too. If we can get rail with trail, then I think our Wonderful. effort will be even much better than it is. Besides the Western New England Greenway, there's also an East Coast Greenway that connects 15 states, 450 cities and towns, over 3,000 miles, and it goes from Maine all the way down to Florida. That sounds incredible. It's bike tourism. When we did the interview about Ragbri, Shim Bitterman, who was the writer from Los Angeles who went to Ragbri to do the ride, he said that he put his bike on Amtrak 
and he didn't have to take it apart, didn't have to put it into a box, cost $15. He rolled it right off the train. I mean, that's the way to get to these places. Take the train to the East Coast Greenway. Take it to the Tart Trails up in northern Michigan. Um, roll your bike off the train and take off. Adventure Cycling has a Pacific Coast bike map that goes from Seattle to San Diego or wherever you want to go. Wow. That'd be a long trip. And if you can do it with minimal car interaction, that just makes the whole thing worthwhile. Well, there's been a few people who've gone from Alaska to the tip of South America. They're on roads a lot of the way, of course. A lot of these greenways are on roads, but they try to use the- You know, uh, I've actually been following on Instagram, Carla Goes South, and she started in Canada, and she's going all the way down through South America. And some of the pictures she, she posts on Instagram are really amazing. And she's doing it by herself. She's, I don't know, a 30-year-old Spanish woman. Um, check her out. It's called Carla Goes South on Instagram. Cool. Well, our next interview is also by Lily Hoffman Strickler, and it's with artist Kathleen King-Page. It's on her bike scribble art and sculptures. Kathleen has her sculptures in five states, California, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, and South Carolina. And here's the interview. I'm Kathleen King Page. I've been making art for as long as I can remember and actually cycling almost as long. I became a professional artist in uh, 1983, but I um, officially kicked off the training wheels at the age of four. And <laughs> I haven't been in without wow. a bicycle since. <laughs> Why were you like, I wanna create art about this? Bikes were always part of our lives in, in my family. It was just something you did. It was part of life. It wasn't a, a special thing. I rode my bike to school. I used it to get to friends and, and events and go to the beach and, and all of that. And I was very naive, but I actually did California AIDS ride on a mountain bike with a bike rack in tennis shoes. Wow. Because How I was, was that? <laughs> in, and I bought my first spandex jersey and padded shorts for the first time to do <laughs> to do a six hundred mile bike ride. Wow! And I made it. <laughs> I did it. I encountered all of these very serious amateur cyclists that had the whole Euro Pro look down and kind of schooled me in a, a crash course of what I ought to be doing. <laughs> right before that, I had gotten into watching the Tour de France and, and things like that. So after that, I was into the, the racing and starting to push myself for a distance and, and time and those sorts of things. But I was never fast, but had any kind of professional um, athletic chops to be able to compete. I've always just been recreational and that's the way I like it because Really, um, it's the freedom and the nature and the wind in my hair that I'm that I'm after. The wind in your in your face and your hair seems to be a very popular thing yeah. that people love about biking. <laughs> well, and the way it, it got into my work, when you're an artist, you sort of move through a lot of different phases and you learn by looking at what other artists have done. So you kind of work through everyone else's style and everyone else's way of interpreting life and things and it takes a while for you to actually free up and and let your soul come through and one day i was 
actually just scribbling. I call them bike scribbles. And I was um, scribbling really quickly on paper and seeing what I could do. And just with that, just sort of freehanding what's going to come out of me energetically. And I drew this scribble of a bicycle. And I, I literally stood up and stood back from it and went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this The cycling finally ended up, you know, coming out through the pens and the, the paintbrushes and, and onto the paper and the canvas. And I, I painted uh, the, the first one, which was called One Kilometer on Canvas, that did depict a pro bike racer riding under the Flam Rouge, the one kilometer flag. And that was in uh, 2007. I went to my first interbike uh, shortly after that, followed the tour of California, painted live at Interbike three years in a row and did a commemorative painting of the um, Interbike convention back when we had one of those. And that's kind of how people started to get to know me. I know you've worked on a lot of murals and yes. canvas. Is there one that you prefer? It's funny, I actually started professionally by doing a, a mural in my hometown. And that was in a photoreal style. And I think it's um, 62 feet across and 14 feet high funded by the community. And uh, it took about six months to finally wow. complete that. But I refer to the murals as visual shouting. I tend to be kind of an introvert and kind of quiet, but put the message out there big. And now I'm doing the uh, bike scribble forms and I've also done a runner form as a sculpture. And those are very satisfying now because we have to move and grow and move on. But, but yeah, working big, is probably the, the favorite. How has the process been from transitioning to, you know, these 2D murals and, and canvases into these 3D sculptures of such like intricate designs? Have you found it difficult or has it been, you know, relatively easy? It was really natural, actually. Awesome. And a lot of people had mentioned to me, wow, this should be a sculpture. And um, I would say, yeah, that, that intrigues me. I'd, I'd love to do that. But sculpture takes a lot more room than a canvas and equipment. There's fire involved. <laughs> so I didn't have the resources around me easily accessible until 2013 when the city of Greenville invited me out to first put a mural on the Swamp Rabbit Trail and then a sculpture. We fabricated the, the first one uh, in Greenville with their local artisans, Greenville, South Carolina. Awesome. Of all places for a California girl to go all the way across the country. And the, the fun part is there's a mural of two cyclists on a bike shop in Atascadero, California, called Cayman Cycle and Run. Literally, if you draw a line straight across the country, the mural in Greenville is facing the opposite direction. I read you're in the process of trying to expand where your art is reaching. The city of Fresno is having the International Pedal Summit on October 27th. They are inviting a delegation from their sister city, which is Munster, Germany, which is the cycling capital of Germany. And Fresno is really looking to expand their cycling community and cycling infrastructure for the cycling community there. And the summit is going to kick off a lot of that. And they're commissioning me to do some bike scribble sculptures for that summit, and then those will be installed in the surrounding neighborhoods. 
your art is a way for you as a as a person who's quite introverted to sort of shout and and be mm-hmm. like this is what I feel what do you hope other people will take away or feel when they encounter your art is there anything that you put into your art with the hope of sharing with others all of the scribble forms are about the joy of motion and the grace of motion and what i'm doing with the simplicity of line is really breaking down the component parts of that motion to a a graceful uniform connected thread whenever I'm putting that into a canvas or a mural or, of course, a sculpture. I want to evoke that joy and that freedom of moving the body through space and just the the joy of that, of having a, a physical form that works beautifully and feeling healthy and, and fit, being able to go wherever you want, whenever you want, uh, out in the world and be close to nature, all of it. Really, when you're doing public art, I call it installing the human spirit in the landscape. Art is not supposed to serve any function necessarily, except to be interesting. And some will think it's beautiful, but it reminds you that being a human, just being is worthwhile, it's valuable. So take a moment, look at the art, see what it makes you feel and recognize that you're an expressive individual as well. And to continue to express yourself and enjoy being. A lot of us in the in the biking community really express ourselves through biking. And it is a really just great way to connect with the world around you. So I think having that message and, and translating it through your art is just a really great thing to be doing. You know, both things are very closely related, actually, because a lot of people, uh, my friends in the cycling community and myself included, will, you know, post pictures on, on socials and just of their bicycle and with the caption, my therapist. Yep. Because anybody who's who's gone on a bike ride for more than an hour is very familiar with the endorphin rush. And runners will always talk about runner's high and cycling. It's the same thing. It inspires in you just a good feeling to feel good. Art really does the same sort of thing. It allows an, an expression for things that maybe you can't verbalize. It allows you to experience passion in a quiet mode. What is your absolute favorite thing about cycling? Getting to the places you can't get any other way and being able to, to see that. It's, it's always about nature for me. So, so getting to those uh, remote places that you can only know on a bike. Yeah, it's being able to get off the beaten path. I'm looking forward to capturing what is unique about those places and interpreting it for their communities and building that because at the end of all of this is the desire to spread our cycling love (laughs) throughout the world. But equally important is to make sure that all of our friends and family in the cycling world are safe out there and to remind the people that aren't cyclists that we are there with them on their streets and their communities and that we're people with families And we should be able to go out and and enjoy our sport or commute or what have you on the bicycle and make it home safely every day through our family. It spreads that message just as much that cyclists are here, they're in your community, they're they're in your space and, and stay aware. 
So thanks to Lily Hoffman Strickler for her two interviews today. Before we leave, I want to give you a couple of quotes here, Nick. We've been talking about cycle tracks and greenways and all that. Here, here's a great quote by H.G. Wells. Cycle tracks will abound in utopia. What a great environment if there were cycle tracks everywhere. It would just be utopia, a beautiful place to live. Thank you for this episode, Taylor. And ride safe. Ride safe. Jinx. <laughs> and that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.